Hello there, my name is Alan Mulhern. Welcome to The Quest. In the last podcast, episode 51, I outlined a philosophy of technology, how it interacts with consciousness and our human nature. The argument is complex, and I wish to go over two points. The first is some reflections on our emergence as a species. The second, our deep entanglement with technology from the beginning. Firstly, some explanation of the terminology and dating of hominid and human species. Our ancestors departed from the chimps genetically around 7 million years ago. These were the early hominids. They were followed by the genus Australopithecus, who lived from 4.4 million years ago to around 1.4 million years ago. These had many ape-like traits, but changes in the skull size and the movement to bipedality via a change in the spine and leg architecture indicated a movement away from the primates and towards increasing hominization, that is, human features. Overlapping with the Australopithecines, there is the emergence of the Homo genus or lineage, which is a group of species I am referring to in the first part of this podcast. Our ancestors from 2.4 million years ago onwards had an elementary, slowly developing technology that paralleled the evolution of their brains and bodies. Homo habilis existed approximately from 2.4 to 1.44 million years ago, according to the Smithsonian Institute. The first fossils being found by Louis and Mary Leakey in the early 1960s in the Olduvai Gorge of northern Tanzania, that is, in the famous East African Rift Valley, the most probable home for the emergence of ancient humanity. They were helped later by their son Richard Leakey, who wrote some fascinating books on these discoveries. Homo habilis is our genus, but not our species, that is, human but not Homo sapiens. The dates for Homo habilis are approximately the same as those for the stone tools described in the previous episode, and thousands of them were found at the gorge by the Leakeys and subsequent paleoanthropologists, that is, those who study the development of anatomically modern humans, a process known as hominization. Homo habilis had a slightly larger brain and smaller teeth than their predecessor, Australopithecus, and averaged around 4 feet tall and around 50 kilos in weight. Still had quite long arms, indicative of our tree-dwelling, much earlier ancestors. Their elementary technology of hand-held, sharpened stones saw them across one million years of their existence. Moreover, we have recently discovered that at the time of Homo sapiens' emergence, there were other species of humanity on the Earth similar to Homo habilis in weight and brain size that is considerably smaller than Homo erectus and Homo sapiens, for example. These included Homo naledi in South Africa, Homo lusonensis in the Philippines, Homo floresiensis in Indonesia, and the Red Deer cave people in China. 
there are probably more species to be found. Homo habilis coexisted in East Africa with a related but distinct human species, Homo erectus, who again was our genus but not our species. Homo erectus was about the size, shape and weight of modern humans, with a larger brain than Homo habilis, though somewhat less than Homo sapiens, with shorter arms and a longer leg ratio than Homo habilis, so that they were no longer partial tree dwellers, but lived on the ground and could walk and run efficiently. They were the first to leave Africa and encounter a considerable range of environments as they spread east all the way to northern China and to the Philippines. This meant they had considerable intelligence as well as athleticism, social grouping and, crucially, technologies. Being fully bipedal, with larger brains, they began to create and use more advanced technology, in particular hand axes. With their greater social coordination, they became effective hunters, thus obtaining the higher energy sources needed for their larger brains and more strenuous hunting tasks. This was combined with the use of the hearth, so fire, cooking and protection of the group were improved. They also had elementary construction techniques and had some protection of themselves from animals and insects and so forth. Homo erectus was to last from 1.9 million years ago to 145,000 years ago, very close to the present, anthropologically speaking. So they were to overlap with Homo sapiens for almost 200,000 years. Since Homo sapiens had a significantly larger brain and could adopt and improve on their technologies, they, or another member of the Homo lineage, such as Homo heidelbergus, could well have driven Homo erectus to extinction. Eliminating other species became a Homo sapiens characteristic and has accelerated in modern times to a great extinction event of other creatures on the planet. This was probably the same fate as befell the Neanderthals in Europe, Homo heidelbergus in Africa and the Denisovans in Asia, who also overlapped with Homo sapiens. The Neanderthals, they had an even larger brain than Homo sapiens. However, one should remember it's not the actual brain size which is the critical factor in intelligence, but the brain-body-weight ratio. So Homo neanderthalis, although having a larger brain, had a heavier body. Also, evidence indicates that they had a similar hyoid bone, which is a horseshoe-shaped structure in the neck, suggesting that they had the ability to speak. They lived in smaller groups and showed no evidence of trade, which Homo sapiens did. So we were one of a genus of at least eight other species who were on Earth during the time span of Homo sapiens as a species, all of which were in the Homo lineage, were bipedal. Some had larger brains than others, but they all had larger brains than their ancestors. Those with smaller body mass and smaller brains may have been more advanced cognitively than first assumed, since having the lower body mass, their brain mass would have been lower as well. The only one of the above eight species for whom we have not yet found tools is Homo naledi of South Africa. However, their wrist and hand structure had evolved so that it was capable of tool use, so it's unlikely that they did not have tools and weapons. The latest estimates of the 
Smithsonian Institute puts the emergence of Homo sapiens now at 330,000 years ago. The reason why our ancestors were able to survive on the ground and not have to retire to the trees where they were protected was partly because of the use of stone tools and weapons, which later became more complex. Subsequently, the use of fire, construction techniques, more advanced hunting implements and weaponry, together with a larger brain, language, greater reasoning, planning, social interaction and existence in larger groups made it possible for Homo sapiens to move to the top of the food chain. Technology was part of a system of variables. The changes in brain and body structure took place in partial advances through mutations of our genes. Those that proved durable were because they were favourable to certain technologies, among other things. In the example already given of this series of mutations leading to the opposable thumb and fingers, vital for tool creation and tool use, this allowed the effective handling of stones and early weapons. Being bipedal had great advantage if one's hands could manage weapons effectively. These genetic mutations spread because the individuals and groups that possessed them were the ones that survived. Thus, developing technology and changing genetic structure go hand in hand, so to speak. I described this in the last episode as an autocatalytic process by which a positive and eventually accelerating interaction is taking place between technology and our evolution. These two points on species development and technology, if accepted, give us a sharper edge, to continue the metaphor, to our exploration of our current situation. The human species is not static. It evolved from the primates in stages over millions of years. The evidence for this is overwhelming. Its body and brain structure changed over a long period and from about 2.4 million years ago, our ancestors began to use primitive technologies essential to their survival. These remained very elementary with Homo habilis, but then became more complex from about 1.5 million years ago with more evolved forms of our ancestors. The human lineage was to fan out like that of almost all creatures that have evolved into different species. One could think of these as experiments by evolution in the development of a genus, that is a group of species. That gives evolution a teleological slant, a view favoured by Théo de Chardin, for example, who saw purpose and meaning built into it a perspective not shared by the majority of life scientists. However, this fanning out process of the genus Homo into different species subsequently reversed and reduced to one species, ourselves. Also, just as most other non-human species have disappeared in the long unfolding of evolution, and just as other members of our genus have also become extinct, some of this caused by us no doubt, then one can easily envisage the extinction of our species also. And this is a possibility we now face 
though it is not arising from outside of ourselves, but from inside, from our human nature, our psyche, and its technological impacts and creations. On the other hand, a totally opposite position is possible. Technology from our beginnings had been integral to our genetic and evolutionary development, as just explained. At first, this was an entanglement of technology with our biological evolution. Later, it became deeply linked and interactive with our cultural evolution as human civilizations developed through technology. At our present conjuncture, the extraordinary developments of technology and its interconnectedness with the life sciences, especially the alteration of the genetic code, now makes possible the creation of new species which are no longer Homo sapiens. We no longer have to wait for this slow process of evolution and the random mutation of our genes. We can directly alter the genes themselves. We can create altered humans who will be as different or even more different from us as Homo sapiens was from Homo heidelbergis, Florensiensis, Neanderthalis, Erectus, Habilis and so on. We are on the verge of creating new species of the Homo lineage. Between these two extremes of potential extinction on the one hand and on the other the creation of new species of the human and post-human genus, there are many other possibilities to be explored later. Technology, no matter how primitive, was then from the beginning a critical component in that group of variables that made possible the genetic changes in the Homo lineage that led to Homo sapiens. We are neither evolution's final expression nor crowning achievement, for given a chance on this planet, evolution will continue. But the problematic result thus far of evolution has been the emergence of a complex and divided creature, ourselves who is now capable of interfering directly in its own genetic code and therefore of creating not only clones but new developments of our species Homo digitalis, Homo artificialis and so forth much as we create new models of cars. Very soon AI itself will be able to do likewise. The scenario in front of us is awesome and terrifying. In one sense, there is nothing new in further species evolution, or for that matter, the evolution of a new genus. This has always been the case. Neither is there anything new in the very close relationship between genetic change and technology. The massive difference is that it can now be done by us and artificially, and the rate of change can be exponential. Nanotechnology integrated with the life sciences, artificial embryo creation and artificial intelligence makes this all possible. And if this can happen, it probably will. Technologies not only alter human identity by being entangled with the changing genetic structure of the evolving Homo genus, but they also deeply influence the psychology of distinct periods of the history of civilizations, which does not involve changing genetic structure 
since this does not change significantly over the period of a few thousand years. Over 99% of the period of the Homo genus has been as a hunter-gatherer, which has certainly been the case since Homo erectus began the move out of Africa 1.8 million years ago and covered a significant part of the globe. What confidence stone tools had given this species so that they were capable of such a huge endeavour. One imagines their sense of agency, their effectiveness, must have increased enormously. There is evidence that strongly suggests that at some point Homo erectus was also capable of looking after those who were ill. So we have remarkably human traits already manifesting in a pre-Homo sapiens species. Homo sapiens, much later at around 70,000 years ago, also left Africa and again would have had enough technology and knowledge to survive their extraordinary journey in all habitable parts of the Earth. Behaviourally modern humans emerged shortly afterwards around 50 to 60,000 years ago, which is to say they were the same genetically, structurally and in terms of intelligence as modern humans. One of the signs of this enormous development was the great increase in variety and sophistication of their tools, that is, their technologies, whether of cooking, hunting, food preparation, mastery of fire, and so on. Without these, survival was impossible, since by around 20,000 years ago, the Earth was at a glacial maximum and was in a major ice age. By the late Stone Age, after, say, 40,000 years ago, there existed the cave wall paintings of Altamira, from 36,000 years ago, Chauvet, 35,000 years ago, and Lascaux, 17,000 years ago, in France and Spain, these famous cave paintings, that show a breathtaking level of beauty and sophistication. Pablo Picasso, on seeing them, is alleged to have said, we have invented nothing. If you want a real treat and find this world of our ancestors as fascinating as I do, I recommend you watch Werner Herzog's film Cave of Forgotten Dreams, available actually on YouTube, or access the photos of these caves on a search engine. They largely show animals as if the human beings of this period were immersed in nature and were especially fascinated by impressive animals. Indeed, there is a statuette of possibly 40,000 years ago of the Lion Man found in a cave in the German Alps, which shows a human body and a lion head, as if the human was in a dual unity with nature. Yet we know that many of the animals on the cave walls have become extinct, and this was largely, though not entirely, because of Homo sapiens. The same species that portrayed on the walls a magical, numinous, animistic absorption in nature where the spirits of the natural world seem immensely powerful and godlike. So here we have the essence of the dilemma, the antinomy that lies in our consciousness and is expressed in our technologies. Homo sapiens as creator and destroyer. Our earliest artistic creations show this unity of opposites inside of our very psyche. Modern research has now shown that the extinction or near disappearance of large animals in any part of the globe occurred shortly after the arrival of Homo sapiens. However, 
it seems that large game were being hunted down from about 400,000 years ago. So probably by species existing just prior to Homo sapiens, and then of course by Homo sapiens itself. So more advanced weaponry and social cooperation was possible among them, presumably also Homo erectus. So it could have been any of a number of the species of the Homo lineage that might have made it into the position of advanced consciousness. And it was most probably a combination of factors that proved decisive in this emergence. For example, language ability, large brain size, living in larger social groups, the morphology of body and brain, allowing bipedality, advanced tool creation and use, adequate vocalisation, high precision in hand movement, control of fire and so on. As far as the emergence of self-awareness is concerned, I regard it as mysterious as the other two great mysteries, that of the emergence of life itself and then the emergence of consciousness. John Eccles pondered this long and hard in his many publications, including his intricate and fascinating 1989 publication on the neurophysiology of the brain, titled Evolution of the Brain, Creation of the Self. Nothing I have read comes anywhere near convincing me that evolutionary theory can account for these big three events, the emergence of life, consciousness and self-awareness. I believe that this requires a paradigm change and is beyond what our intellect is capable of. Eccles put it succinctly, quote, There is a divine providence operating over and above the materialistic happenings of biological evolution. Unquote. John Eccles, incidentally, got the 1963 Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine for his work on the synapse. The next huge development was only 12,000 years ago with the Agricultural Revolution. The change in psychology would have been huge. Yuval Harari, in his book Sapiens, outlines some of these features, such as a radically changed sense of time, space and property. He says that the Agricultural Revolution was a massive change in consciousness from the forager to the farmer. I paraphrase. The forager has a vast sky and landscape, immense freedom. The farmer is confined to a very narrow space, which is mine, is property, and land is artificial. The forager is immersed in nature. The farmer is intensely concerned with controlling and predicting nature. The forager is wide-ranging and therefore has awareness of many animals and plants. The farmer is selectively focused. The forager moves lightly, owns practically nothing. The farmer is sedentary and accumulates, stores, hoards and saves. The forager is in the present because the future is outside of control. The farmer is always concerned about the future, always worrying and planning. The agricultural revolution made the future far more important than it had ever been before. Peasants were worried about the future not just because they had more cause for worry, but also because they could do something about it. End of paraphrase. As always, in the evolution of consciousness, there is the dark and the light, the creative and the destructive. The agricultural revolution led to a great increase in population, and within a few thousand years, to the birth of civilization, social hierarchies, class systems, courts, towns, cities, 
that fed off the agricultural surplus. These civilizations were to give birth to warrior societies of immense destructiveness and lust for power and wealth. At the same time, they also birthed the great religions that are still the major ones in the world today. Perhaps no ruler more than Ashoka embodies this duality. Andrew Ma, in his wonderful book, A History of the World, tells the extraordinary story of Ashoka the Great, 304 to 232 BCE, an Indian emperor who ruled almost all of the Indian subcontinent. I summarise and paraphrase. In about 260 BCE, Ashoka waged a bitterly destructive war against the state of Kalinga, which, unlike any of his ancestors, he won. But he embraced Buddhism after witnessing the mass deaths of the Kalinga War, which he himself had waged out of a desire for conquest. Ashoka reflected on the war in Kalinga, which reportedly had resulted in more than 100,000 deaths and 150,000 deportations, which ended at around 200,000 deaths. Legend says that after the war was over, Ashoka ventured out to roam the city, and all he could see were burnt houses and scattered corpses. This sight made him sick, and he cried the famous monologue, What have I done? If this is a victory, what's a defeat? Is this a victory? or a defeat? Is this justice or injustice? Is it gallantry or a rout? Is it valour to kill innocent children and women? Did I do it to widen the empire and for prosperity, or to destroy the other's kingdom and splendour? One has lost her husband, someone else a father, someone a child, someone an unborn infant. What's this debris of the corpses? Are these marks of victory or defeat? Are these vultures, crows, eagles, the messengers of death or evil? The lethal war with Kalinga transformed the vengeful Emperor Ashoka to a stable and peaceful emperor. Ashoka converted gradually to Buddhism beginning around 263 BCE. He was later dedicated to the propagation of Buddhism across Asia and established monuments marking several significant sites in the life of the Buddha. Ashoka regarded Buddhism as a doctrine that could serve as a cultural foundation for political unity. Ashoka is now remembered as a philanthropic administrator. In the Kalinga Edicts, he addresses his people as his children and mentions that as a father he desires their good. I'm sure they were very relieved to hear that. Ashoka's name means painless, without sorrow, in Sanskrit. In his edicts, he is referred to as the beloved of the gods, and he regards everyone with affection. H.G. Wells wrote of Ashoka in his book, The Outline of History, quote, Amidst the tens of thousands of names of monarchs that crowd the columns of history, their majesties and graciousnesses and serenities and royal highnesses and the like, the name of Ashoka shines, and shines, almost alone, a star. Unquote. Perhaps there is no other nation on earth in which religion has played such an important role. That's the end of the paraphrase from Andrew Marr's book, The History of the World. 
The next major shift in human consciousness was the birth of the scientific enlightenment, followed by the Industrial Revolution. I have already given my account of the vast change in psychology that preceded and followed these revolutions. Those who wish to prepare properly may study episodes 42, 43 and 44 on Consciousness, Capitalism and Modernity, released in November-December 2020 on this platform. This will prepare the ground for our next few episodes which contemplate the present conjuncture where Homo sapiens is now set to enact the next stage of the evolution of consciousness, the creation by artificial technological means, new species of the human lineage, as well as the post-human artificial intelligence, which threatens to become a new life form and leave Homo sapiens in the dust of history much as Homo sapiens left behind its ancestors and rivals in the hugely creative but problematic ascent of consciousness.